Hello, and welcome to Faculty Feed with me, Dr. Jerry Rabelais, Associate Vice President for Health Science Center Faculty Development at the University of Louisville. With me are my co-hosts, Dr. Stacy Sainer, Director of HSC Faculty Development, and Dr. Laura Weingartner, Director of Research for Faculty Health Professions Education. Once a week, we're going to come together to use this podcast to bring faculty development content to feed your hunger and satisfy your appetite so you can magnify your impact as an educator, clinician, researcher, and academic leader. With me today, Stacy Sainer, Laura Weingartner are here with us, along with Dr. Bradshuck, one of our best friends who has worked with us in the Liam program, our leadership program, and whose area of research fixes on this whole notion of compassionate leadership and what really works to engage and motivate employees. Brad, welcome to Faculty Feed. This is an incredible honor to be a part of this esteemed group here. I wish you guys listening could actually see what's happening in the room right now. It's incredible. The big conversations that have come up lately is social determinants of health. Health is not just determined by your genetics. It's not just your biology there are the social determinants of health that also play a major role in how healthy someone is. And that has to do with where you live. It has to do with certain behaviors. Your work also has a big component to your health as well. We really framed up work determinants of health to be an intentional play on social determinants of health because people knew what that was, right? Like we know that, as you mentioned, where you live in the city can determine different levels of health, right? Do you have access to clean drinking water? Are you in the middle of a food desert? What's the education system like? What what other kind of resources do you have access to that, uh, that other people in the community may or may not have access to? And so we wanted to think about, all right, what are those things that happen to us at work that really impact our health? And can we name those and identify them? And then if we can name and identify them, can we then solve for them? See, This is in the same way that social determinants of health is about helping people live better lives holistically. Work determinants of health is in many ways, how do we help people live better lives through their work, not just go to work. Work should be a fulfilling, flourishing experience, not something that kills you at the end of the day. How long have you been working on this? This is an idea that I've had for a year or two, um, and it really came out of a line of work around leadership that we call stinky leaders. Ah. Stinky leaders. Stinky leaders, yeah. This doesn't sound good. Yeah, stinky stinky <laughs> leaders is a really comical way to talk about dysfunction in the workplace and the impact that dysfunction can have on our life. We were standing around a water cooler one day with uh, some colleagues, and we were just kind of talking about those really bad bosses we've had. Those really, like, oh, if yeah. they... If they called us on the phone, we wouldn't answer it. <laughs> Thank goodness and, we have caller ID. And if yeah, right. And if we did, we wouldn't say things we could probably put on this podcast. What we found was like those experiences stayed with us and they impacted us well beyond. I I can think of one in particular for me that I had more than two decades ago, and I can still think about him and the things that he would say or the things that he would do and those things impact. And we thought, well- And how you felt at the time. And probably you can resurrect that right away, right? I can get shaky right now thinking about those experiences. And we thought, well, if those experiences stay with us, can they impact our health in some way? I know that that experience impacted my health in in the immediate context. But now, is there any long-term impact on my health as a result of these stinky situations. And the way that we came up with the idea of stinky is much like a skunk will skunk a dog. 
It smells really bad and it takes intentional work to get rid of. And sometimes when we're with these dysfunctional situations, it takes intentional healing to move on from those situations. Right. And we have to do that work. What you're talking about is these stinky leaders mm -hmm. create stressful environments yep. for the people that work with, for them, around them. And, and since we've all had these experiences with these kind of bosses before, um, what is it that your work does to inform what's no, what wasn't known before? It really is a, a dysfunctional wellness cycle. And that's the term that we use to explain why people don't engage in wellness programming um, in their place of business. Right. So the the wellness industry is a multi-billion dollar industry. Wow. And people are putting gyms in and cafeterias and uh, you can get a massage and it's so amazing. And if you work at Google, you have a nap pod. You can go take a nap. I've heard of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I do they have those in the College of Ed? They do. Because we don't have them yet at medicine. Not yet. Not I, yet. I hear They're the dean, the dean's working on them though. That's what I hear. <laughs> That's what I hear. Here's the problem with that. that. That all sounds terrific. The return on investment literature would suggest that there is a zero or a negative return on investment on wellness programming. Wow. And a lot of the more recent work that I've done has been in why are people not engaging in these programs? The idea here is that I'm going to put in a gym. I have a really stressful day at work. There's lots of things that happen. I get a bunch of emails and I get kind of irritated throughout the day. And I'm going to go to the gym. And the gym is going to magically fix me. And then I'm going to leave the gym and I'm going to go right back into that dysfunctional environment. The problem with these wellness programs and, and what's happening within the determinants of health literature is that we're not accounting for the dysfunction that caused the problem in the first place. We're putting someone in. Putting a, a Band-Aid on it. Putting a Band-Aid on it for an hour or 90 minutes, yeah. right? And then we're putting that person right back in that dysfunctional cycle. So we call that dysfunctional wellness. I had a personal experience around that where I had a very difficult time for several years uh, with a variety of issues, one of which was who my boss was. I took a sabbatical for six months and, and first sabbatical I'd ever taken from the university and went away and it was just wonderful. I think it saved me and, and refocused me in a way that nothing else could have. Literally the day I came back. So you think six months, not, not an hour of exercise, but six months of study and thought and reflection and just time alone. The day I came back, it's as though I had never left. Yeah. I was right back in it, just what you're talking about. I was in the middle of it. It's almost like the switch flipped immediately as soon as I got the first phone call that put me back, oh yeah, this stuff isn't resolved. What you're saying is, unless we deal with the root cause of, of this, then, then we have trouble. So that's why you've got to determine what it is and then go after that. Right, and work determinants of health isn't going to be the magic bullet, but if we can explain even 10% of the variance or explain 10% of the model, like I feel like that makes a difference. And here's my issue with the story that you're talking about. The assumption then, is there something wrong with you? You need to manage your stress better. Like that's, on, <laughs> like, that's your problem. That's not your employer's problem. Yeah. You can't manage your diabetes. What's wrong with you? Are you the assumption is you're lazy. Yeah. You're just lazy. You're just not eating the right foods. That could be true, but it could also be true that you work in a place that is so chronically stressful, so amazingly dysfunctional, and not only stinky leaders, but I've had some really stinky colleagues, yes. yeah. right, who have really made me feel 
pretty small. And those people have a tendency to create this cycle of dysfunction. And so what we're doing is challenging the assumption that something is wrong with you. You're lazy. You just can't manage it. You need to eat better. You need to run. You need to go to the gym. Those things may be true, but it could also be that work is in fact slowly eroding years off of your life. And I would also bring up, I've seen some work from the Heath brothers Mm. that have also talked about it is exhaustion because of all the stress they're dealing with day in and day out. It is hard to eat well if you have had a crazy day. Makes you want to grab a Snickers. Last Friday, and my my wife will hold me true to this. Last Friday, I came home from a trip to Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, I started my day at eight o'clock in the morning and I did not land in Louisville, Kentucky until 2 a.m. Saturday morning. You know what I ate? Something good, I hope. Taco Bell, baby. (laughs) I just just wanted some Taco Bell. Now, some Taco Bell would say, you know, that's 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 perfectly fine. Did you hear a bell before that? I did. I've seen the commercials. I did. I did. I love it. It is my... It's comforting, It's my comfort food, and I just wanted something comforting. What I should have come home and done is maybe broil a chicken breast or something like that and, and eat some leafy greens. But man, Never gonna it's happen. not going to happen at 2 o'clock in but the But so morning. many people turn to things that comfort them that are bad. Taco Bell, temporarily bad, but Delicious. they drink too much. Yeah. You know, They eat too much. They do things that are just not healthy in response to that chronic stress. You know, I think about... I think about the analogy of drinking too much as like having a sponge. My Imagine we had a cup that was full of water. And temporarily, I put a sponge in that cup. And I can soak some of that water up and give myself just a little bit of room. Sometimes alcohol can numb that stress. Sometimes other kinds of behaviors can. A, a lot of unhealthy, dysfunctional coping strategies that we might develop give us just a short-term reprieve but then we have to squeeze that water back in that cup and what we see happen is things begin to spill out and they're no longer contained and those things begin to cause problems and now we have to clean them up this is part of our concern now i'll say on the on the flip side of this we have looked at the first breadcrumb that we dropped, so we're dropping these little breadcrumbs of research uh, so that people can come along who are way smarter than us and take this to the next level, is we try to build a business case. Is there a health-related upside for developing cultures of engagement? Oh, okay. And there are. There are. There's a, Tell there's, us about it. There's a business case. So people who work in places where they have an experience high levels of engagement. So imagine what that means. There's a lot of meaning in their work. They have a sense of safety, not only physically, but there's an emotional and psychological safety. They have the tools and resources they need to get their job done. They feel like there's purpose. They belong to this this group, and there's a deep sense of connection. When people have those things, you know what they told us? They slept great at night. They were less likely to stop on the way home and eat Taco Bell. Uh, they did occasionally, but yeah. not all the time. They were more likely to be able to go to the gym. They drank less alcohol. And an interesting finding from that particular research study was that men and women had different experiences of engagement at work. I think that's a really important nuanced finding. 
that engagement or building places, building cultures of engagement isn't a one-size-fits-all strategy, but it is contextually sensitive. And in our study, the demographic that we had looked at was gender. And knowing that men and women had unique experiences of work really helps us understand how to build places that help engage everybody. So when we talk about equity and inclusion, this is an important conversation to have. So let me, let me make sure I understand you could have chronic stress in your workplace, but if there is this engagement, this willingness to sort of put forward after extra effort and all those things you mentioned about what characterizes engagement, then the it's as though the receptor for the stress isn't as uh, it doesn't take the stress as well, or is that what you're saying? Yes, yeah, a good question. So in most of the models, the predictive models that we run based on the research stress falls out of the model as a predictor of engagement or as a, a non-predictor. And because stress and engagement can live in the same place for a little while. Okay. So we can think back to a time, maybe uh, if you're listening, you were really engaged in the moment and something was going on and it was exciting or there was, there was a bit of uh, drama that was associated with it. There was a sense of urgency that was about this. It, was that stressful? Yes. Did it have an endpoint? It did. And that's where those things can coexist in the same space. It's where stress never stops. It's where stress is waking us up in the morning. I can't sleep at night. I have heard people say, I just gotta take the edge off. And taking the edge off means I get, I've got to numb this stress for a minute so that I can function in the other areas of my life. That kind of stress and engagement, I don't think those two things live in the same ballpark. Yeah, so so not all stress is the same. No. There are degrees of stress. Yes. There are time frames of stress. And so I, I've had personal experience with chronic stress. And so maybe it, it's good to stop for a moment and just say something about stress. So acute stress, you know, an acute response where your blood pressure goes up and blood flow to your muscles goes up and your heart beats faster because catecholamines are rolling and your steroids go up. When you're running away from the bear, Yes, great to have that, but it's only got to last two or three minutes. It's when that hit comes over and over and over all day, every day, five days a week. And maybe even if you go home, and it's still stressful there for different reasons. But dysfunctions in the family, who knows what else is going on at home. But, but those things force you to live in a way that... You've reset this baseline so that now your blood pressure and now your heart rate and now your blood sugar and on and on, all these things are being driven in a way that is not healthy. And so the ability to understand that better, at least from a work standpoint, and what drives that and then help work systems understand that better and then act, then intervene, right? That is that where this is headed? Yeah, and I, when we when we talk about the Great Resignation, and we see, we this, we see this happening across the economy, where people are are opting to no longer uh, stay in jobs that they've trained for a long time for, and they're moving into different career paths, or or they're you just stop taking a sabbatical. They're just going to not work for a little bit. I think this is the question people are asking: Is this has this been worth the cost? Has this been worth the cost of my time, my health, my family? What have I given up to get here? And people are saying, no, it's not worth the cost. I'm no longer willing to pay that price for that. And as a result of that, I'm reevaluating 
my priorities here. So is it a good outcome of the pandemic then? If we have to find one good outcome that it, it opened people's eyes to this? I think it's a tremendous opportunity for us to reframe like what are acceptable levels of stress? What does engagement look like here? What does it mean to have a sense of purpose? What does it look like to be included? Is this an equitable conversation that we're having? I think now we have the opportunity to 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 make good on those things and it's gonna require us to think outside the box. It's gonna require us to break down old ways of doing work and old ways of policies and procedures and rethink what what is healthy, what is what is acceptable, what is what is the value proposition of the future of work here now and how does that manifest itself into this culture? Engagement is local. It is not global. And what I mean by that is you're often engaged with your team. You're often engaged with a small group of coworkers who are really kind of the people that you belong with. You're connected up through the system, but but engagement really happens at these local levels. And I think we just have to reevaluate. What does it mean to be stressed here? And is it okay to be chronically stressed? Is that a price we're willing to... I hope the answer is no. So you're really delving into a, a dramatic re-understanding and reframing, as you put it, yeah. of what work brings to us and what the trade-off is yeah. in, in terms of that work. Yeah. And people are asking that question and coming up with an answer that says, not not for me. And, and the, maybe the pandemic gave them a taste of work from home or uh, it just pushed them over the edge, depending on what they were doing. And they have an opportunity then to say, you know what? Not for me. Not for I, me. I'm going to rethink this. Kindergarten no longer for my wife. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. or nurse no longer for the ICU um, That's right. uh, person. I know in social determinants of health, discrimination bias is a major piece. Oftentimes it's not additive. There's a, there's an interaction there when, when you look at the data. So I know you've just started this research. Do you have any research that suggests that discrimination in the workplace has a similar effect? I can't imagine that it doesn't. Right. We don't have the research for that. But I can tell you, we are undertaking a really, really exciting project in partnership with the Department of Communication and the School of Medicine at the University of Louisville, where I think for the first time, we're going to connect biophysical measures of health so cataclysmic specifically and these social science indexes of work experiences engagement community isolation and also have a host of different demographic information i think what we're going to find is that there are health inequities that are structurally pervasive throughout our systems of work i have to think about the mom who's working three jobs, who just to put food on the table and what her stress is like and what NTI was like and how, how we find childcare and, and how that might be very different based on the zip code that you live in just in our city. There's no question about it that there is a health inequity and a discrimination conversation that we have got to be having around this. I know you're still analyzing the data. If likely when you find these trends, what do we do? I, I would love to find community partners that can help us really contextualize the data. You know, it's it's one thing to look at the, the numbers on the sheet. It's another thing to hear the stories. The stories, I think, are going to be really powerful. So going into the community, understanding what's going on and building solutions that are community specific, 
um, and that take into account and elevate voices that we may not have traditionally heard from in this area of research. Have you done, um, so I know you've done a lot of qualitative research and, and other projects. Have you done any qualitative work with this project yet? We have not yet. No, 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 no. This is, um, right now, this is purely uh, quantitatively driven. Um, I can't imagine that the stories that we w- would hear would not add significant, rich meaning to the data that we're going to get. We're excited that I think anecdotally, we know no matter where we are, what job we're in, what context we find ourselves in sometimes work is not is not good for our health i'm trying to think of a different word other than the word here that's why they call it work yeah i mean you know like and and there have been times in our life probably all of our lives where we're like man this is really has had a has had a cost for me anecdotally we know that i'm really excited that we're now going to be able to point to a number and we're going to be able to say here's the evidence for this now let's solve for this and let's look at the inequities that are systemically a part of this. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious about something, Brad. The, um, you know, we, we hear a lot about generational differences in attitudes as, as we have different generations of employees in the workforce now. So you've got everything from uh, over 65-year-olds still in the workplace down to 20-year-olds in the workplace, probably representing three or four sure. of these generations. Um, are you... Th- Considering, looking at, thinking about how does the 25-year-old in the workplace deal with this versus the 65-year-old? Yeah, absolutely. And they're going to be totally, they'll be different, right? Sure. And when we think about generational research, first of all, one of my my friends and colleagues, Dr. Kristen Lucas, who works at the College of Business here, has done some work around how the next generation precedes the younger generation. Uh, And it's... she calls it the kids these days. And that generation <laughs> yeah. after generation will say things like, well, the kids these days, the kids yeah, these days. Right? And it's, it's funny how these things come in uh, in these waves and these cycles. And if you've not heard, read her work, please go check that out. Um, I find when we look at generational differences, there's just needs that are understandably different. So when, I'm, when I was a young faculty, I was thinking about this today, when I was a young faculty member, I was hungry I wanted to do the most innovative projects. Let's go get this. Let's put this work in the hardest journal ever. Let's give me the give me the most difficult class to teach. Like I'm in this. This is what I'm going to be doing. I've been here ten years now. Um, I've I'm I'm a full prof, and now I'm like, let me. Can I? Do I have to change my class this semester? Like, I just really want some stability, right? Like the exciting innovation. Uh, has um, lost its luster yeah. in some places, and so we think generationally, like there are there are just different needs that we have as we as we grow and we go through these different seasons of life. But there's no there's no question when it comes to social determinants or work determinants of health that um, we we would expect to see generational differences here. Yeah, for sure. So you know, this podcast is about faculty development. So let's let's take what you've talked about so far and, and sort of pivot it uh, towards messages for faculty in a health science center or in an academic center. What do they take from what you know so far? So here's what I the, I think the takeaway here is something I'm going to call the red line limit. The red line limit is here is the limit in which you are going to begin to break down. Mm-hmm. The red flag here is the emotion of frustration. When I am frustrated, it is likely that I am reaching my capacity for handling what's going on. 
And that frustration is a sign that I need to take a step back. I need to reprioritize. I need to think. When I feel that sense of frustration bubble up inside me, what I'm learning to do, and I'm not very good at it yet, is being able to say, why is this frustration happening? What around me is causing this? Am I annoyed that I'm in this meeting? Am I annoyed that someone said something? Um, Am I annoyed at the way in which they said it? And interrogating that, and that all happens inside my mind, right? Uh, And it can happen really quickly, helps me understand where that's fresh. It doesn't always mitigate it. I may still be frustrated. I may still be angry or concerned, but at least I know why now, and I can solve for the why if I understand it. If you want to up your game as a professional educator or to enhance your leadership skills in the academic setting, this is the place to be, as together we strive to make UofL a great place to learn, a great place to work, and a great place to invest. Join us next time for more, and come hungry.